North Korea is the impossible state. It's a place that stumped leaders and policymakers for more than three decades. It has a complex history, and it has become the United States' top national security priority. Each week on this show, we'll talk with the people who know the most about North Korea. Today on The Impossible State, we have with us Jenny Jun, who was with CSIS back in the day when she wrote with Victor and Jim Lewis, basically the first report on cybersecurity in North Korea. This was around the time of the Sony hack in 2015. Now Jenny is at Columbia University pursuing her PhD. Victor's alma mater, and Victor says she's crazy for trying to get her PhD there where he did, but she's, I think she's, you're still sane, right, Jenny? It, everything's going okay? Yeah, surprisingly, I'm, I'm doing okay. Okay, good, good. So tell us, where does North Korea fit into the whole cybersecurity conundrum right now? So I think we can think about this broadly sort of in, in two buckets, right? So first, obviously, we need to address, you know, North Korea's cybercrime, also about the, the DOJ indictment that was unsealed a couple of weeks ago. So, I mean... Obviously, this has implications, right? It, it pokes holes in an already sort of leaky sanctions regime, and, and it's very likely that the proceeds are going to fund North Korea's nuclear and missile program development. And that's, that's also supported by the recent UN panel of experts report that came out a couple of weeks ago as well. We can talk about this at a sort of a deeper level than that, right? And I think this is, you know, at a, at a really high level also about North Korea's objectives and, and what they want in terms of their Juche ideology, which is based on self-reliance, and also about Pyongyang, right? They want to make guns and butter instead of guns or butter. And so, you know, this offers a nice outside option between sort of having to trade with their external partners versus, you know, enacting certain domestic economic reforms towards sort of market economy and trade liberalization. And as many of you know, that option is in many ways undesirable for the stability of the Kim regime, right? So cybercrime is emerging as this sort of third way and is separate from these two paths that we sort of had in mind previously. And this is because, you know, why trade and increase your reliance on external actors when you can just steal, right? And it also concentrates the wealth back at the hands of the few at the top, and they can use that money, you know, as leverage to conditionally hand it out based on loyalty and things like that. So this moves away from the need to enact these sort of drastic local domestic economic measures like, you know, currency revaluations, which we know, you know, they really hate. And it also lowers the costs of sort of economic isolation, especially during COVID. Even if you don't have to trade with external partners and close your borders, if you can just steal, you know, a sizable sum of money, it makes you less vulnerable at the negotiating table. So so I think that's the first thing, first implication as to how, how it all fits into the larger conundrum, aside from just sort of the technical aspects of let's stop them from acquiring funds and, and so on. The second part is cyber power can also be thought as an end in itself. And you can think about it in relation to why they wanted to acquire nuclear weapons in the first place, right? Because it gives you the ability to hold hostage things that the U.S. government values, with nukes and, and missiles, you know, it was the ability to hold 
U.S. cities a value, right? And that gives them North Korea power, and that power can be used to achieve a variety of national objectives, such as security guarantee and things like that. So cyber offers a different way to hold U.S. assets hostage. The things you can hold hostage are much smaller, you know, that's true, but it's a much quicker and cheaper way to, to do that than the missile and nuclear program. And think about the quick time it took for North Korea to plan and execute an attack against Sony compared to the time it's taking them to you know, build a credible sort of nuclear deterrent. So that's the second way we can think about how, how North Korea and their cyber program fits into the larger picture. So, Jenny, let me ask you this. North Korea really put themselves on the map in 2015 with the Sony hack. Have they, every year, have they continued to improve their skills? Are they as world-class at the cyber game as, say, you know, Russia or China or even Iran? Conventionally, we think of them as, as the big four, right? The Russia, China, Iran, North Korea. And it depends on what metrics you're using to kind of measure their capabilities. But I think one thing for sure is that North Korea is definitely invested in this and they have continued to make qualitative and quantitative sort of improvements in their overall cyber sort of capabilities, both in terms of going after sort of industrial espionage, but also sort of in cyber crime as well. And if you look at some of the metrics, things like breakout time, like how fast can you break into an enemy's system and, and compromise their networks and escalate your privileges there, the Russians are the fastest, right? And, and according to some industry reports, it says it takes them less than an hour to do that. Um, so for North Korea, it takes a little longer than that, but they're way ahead of China and Iran on, on that metric specifically. And so it's related to other capabilities too, right? So maybe they're doing breakout at the expense of other things, for example, like OPSEC. So, so you can't really take those things at face value, but that's one way of kind of measuring, are they making sort of these improvements in the technical hacking abilities? And I think they are. I want to bring Victor and Sue into this. And, and I want to ask Sue first, what do policymakers understand about this ability that North Korea now has? And you know, Victor, I want to ask you to weigh in on the same question. It, is this something that policymakers realize that we need to do something to deter? And are they taking this seriously enough right now? Well, so I do think policymakers are taking this very seriously. You see U.S. Department of Justice very engaged on this issue. That's why they, they unsealed this very detailed case, you know, against three North Korean hackers last month, right? And they were indicted for super sophisticated, wide-ranging, extensive hacking conspiracies to steal and extort. I think it was like $1.3 billion in, in cryptocurrency from financial institutions like Vietnam, Bangladesh, Taiwan, Mexico, and Africa. So their scope is really staggering, and the policymakers know this. John Demers, the assistant attorney general, said that, I think he said it perfectly when he said North Korea is like 21st century bank robbers, right? So what's really concerning is that these activities are very broad, very wide ranging, all encompassing. And, you know, beyond the Sony attacks, I think I've really got sophisticated. And what's concerning is creation and targeting and deployment of cryptocurrency. And I want to ask Jenny this question because it's literally targeting, they're targeting hundreds of cryptocurrency companies. 
And we're talking about theft of millions of dollars worth of cryptocurrency. You know, they have like from a Slovenian cryptocurrency company several years ago, it's like some $75 million to $25 million from Indonesian cryptocurrency company and so on. It seems like cryptocurrency is one of North Korea's favorite targets, but it's very concerning because unlike like the days of Banco Delta Asia, which Victor knows where I can talk a lot about, when in 2005, when the U.S. Treasury designated this Macau-based Banco Delta Asia uh, as a primary money laundering concern, we were able to restrict North Korea's financial activities by basically turning off the Kim slush funds. But with cryptocurrency, a lot of this is unregulated. So there's really no way for governments to stop private actors from, you know, like once they acquire cryptocurrencies from exchanging cryptocurrencies and bartering with it. So the question I have is like, while U.S. government understands this is a very serious issue, how do we go about combating this? Sure. If I can jump in. No, I think you're absolutely right. And I think they've sort of caught a blind spot and, and are exploiting it to the fullest extent, right? But I think North Korea's cybercrime has gotten sort of severe enough that they're thinking about actual sort of ways to actually regulate these cryptocurrency exchanges and also work with like-minded international partners to get them to adopt domestic legislation in, in their states to regulate cryptocurrency exchanges based in those states. There are a couple sort of international initiatives that try to come up with international consensus for really just sort of transferring existing banking sort of standards and sort of anti-terrorist, you know, money laundering, that sort of regulations onto cryptocurrency exchanges. So I think it's really a matter of time, to be honest. But for now, you know, it is the fact that it's unregulated and, and therefore they're sort of trying to milk it while it's possible. But I think it's coming in one way or another. Yeah, so three quick points. The, the first is that for listeners, we actually had John Demers, the Assistant Attorney General, on our other show, our YouTube show, Capital Cable. This was before the unsealed indictment, but if anybody wants to listen to him, they can come to our other show. Second, so what's to me striking about the North Korean cyber threat from the way we've looked at it when Jenny and her team first did the report for us after, after the Sony hack to today is that is the way the threat has evolved. I mean, evolved or maybe it's only one shoe has dropped might be another way of looking at it in the sense that at the time, we were very concerned that they would use this capability as a weapon, like as a terrorist weapon to destroy infrastructure or to, you know, do things of that nature. Because one of the findings of the report back then was that the people responsible for North Korea's cyber program come out of the same agency that has been responsible historically for North Korean terrorist attacks. So it was one of the things we highlighted in the report. But, you know, what we found since then is that the North Korean cyber threat maybe evolved isn't the right verb, but the focus of it largely has been on theft, right? Robbing people, obtaining hard currency. And so it could be characterized as an evolution of the threat, or it could be that that shoe has dropped, the petty theft, hard currency acquisition shoe has dropped, and the, the terrorist aspect of it has not yet dropped, but it's still there. It could happen. And then the third point is that everything is linked, Right. In the sense that the increase or what we're seeing more activity in terms of North Korean cyber theft is directly related to the state of the economy and in particular COVID. 
right? Because COVID has caused a shutdown in North Korean border trade with China for over a year. You know, the economy's contracted. They're in desperate need of hard currency. And so, you know, I think one of the places we're going to see much more activities in terms of cyber theft, whether it's cryptocurrency or you know whatever it might be, that we're going to just see a lot more of this, or I'm sure law enforcement is looking at this. And they seem indiscriminating in terms of their targets, in the sense that it's not you know, the United States, but it's all over the world, probably where there's the most vulnerability. To me, that's sort of an interesting way in which this, or the way we've looked at this has sort of changed over time. So as long as they're stealing things and not doing any real harm in terms of, you know, terrorism or physical attacks, we're going to do things like indictments. And the indictments, you know, Jenny, I want to ask you, do the indictments actually have any real teeth? Do they actually do anything, you know, other than, you know, call them out? And Victor and Sue, I want to go back to you guys. What happens if they actually do something that does harm? Or do they just have the capability now where they can hold out the threat of doing harm, which is similar to what they have with their nuclear program? So first to you, Jenny. So I think there are a couple of useful things that comes out of these things like DOJ indictments and sanctions. And I should also say this, this is part of a larger sort of broader shift in U.S. cyber strategy in 2018, coming from this idea of we're going to use deterrence by punishment to kind of deter cyber activity coming from our adversaries. They realize that it's not a good way to stop adversary cyber activity. So towards sort of accepting competition as the norm and making it sort of as difficult as possible for, for them to continue what they're doing through adding costs, taking down their infrastructure and things like that in a strategy named sort of persistent engagement and slash defend forward. And so this was the strategy that was adopted and it has been used since 2018. And so indictments are part of that. It's an effort to increase costs on the adversary by naming and shaming, exposing tools and exposing their faces so that they can travel to certain parts of the world. So, so it's not, you know, it's not futile. And they do concrete things like freezing cryptocurrency wallets and, and therefore freezing funds from being physically transferred. So those things are good. But I think people have to be also realistic as to how far these measures can go in terms of changing behavior. And I think that's where you start to see the limitations of these measures. And maybe that's not what they're aiming for, period. But if we want to compel North Korea to, to change their behavior and exercise more restraint in cyberspace, we need to be looking at other measures, I think. And we have to go a little bit beyond indictments and, and sanctions. I agree with Jenny completely. I just would add that I think the Justice Department is really doing an incredible job going after the Kim regime, hackers, as well as investigating, you know, prosecuting attempts for the Kim regime to evade sanctions, right? Justice Department has been doing a lot. And I do agree that when the Justice Department unseals these kind of indictments and make them go public, shame and name or what Jenny just said, it's really good for all of us because it just makes everybody understands the nature of the threat, including the private companies and just public in general. And I think cyber deterrence is it's really difficult, right? But it's really important that we increase their operational cost of doing this stuff, as well as investing in disrupting and exposing 
basically North Korea's infrastructure to counter uh, their cyber threats. But I have to say that I, I think DOJ is doing a good job. And I would also just add one more thing. You know, when DOJ, the, the, the recent indictment talked about three guys and it expands on a complaint against like several years ago, it was 2018 of this guy, uh, one of the guy, Park jin Hyuk. It was just really expense on that initial indi- uh, indictment against Park jin And, you know, that kind of thing really helps the researchers. I'm sure Jenny writing her dissertation right now can testify to this. It's just because it just gives us valuable resources to better understand and research North Korea cyber activities. So, so practice, you know, kudos to them. I think that it's, it's important. Yeah, the only thing I'll add is that so, the, you know, the unsealing of these indictments, the naming of these individuals, and, you know, Jenny also said this, in a sense, it's not unlike what we have been doing from the Treasury Department side on proliferation financing, you know, going after individuals or companies that are in violation of sanctions. And as Sue said, whatever we can do to disrupt or make it more costly for them to operate the way that they're operating. I think the other thing that's important is So when the U.S. government gives this a higher profile, like unsealing these indictments and letting Demers do press conferences on it, you know, I think it also shows the private sector that the U.S. government is taking this seriously, which might encourage more information sharing. Again, Jenny's the expert on this, but my sense is that when the private sector deals with things like this, they want to try to stop it and have it go away as soon as possible. And, you know, they don't want to get into some big sort of information sharing, multilateral approach to this involving government and the private sector. They just want the problem to go away. And then you're just playing whack-a-mole. It goes in one place, it shows up in another place. By the U.S. government being giving this a higher profile, I think it maybe gives more confidence, more impetus for others to sh- sort of share information so that there can be a holistic approach to dealing with the problem. And it's also an opportunity for these private firms to really take it seriously and amp up their own security practices and systems against this kind of hacking by North Koreans. So I think that's Victor just made a very important point here. Do we have enough of a deterrent against North Korea and cyberspace? Are, are they sufficiently worried about what we might do to them? So it's, it's a bit, bit hard to kind of say for sure, because if deterrence is working, we're not going to see the results of it working. It's, it's quite unobservable. And so I think we all have to keep that in mind. And I think, as you know, Dr. Cha mentioned a bit earlier, when we really saw a shift in North Korea's activities, right, from this idea that North Korea was going to use cyber activities for destructive and coercive, you know, the things we think about when we, when we think about conventional provocations by North Korea, instead they went to this route of theft in cybercrime. And so some people see that kind of shift and say, well, maybe this is deterrence working, that this is, you know, some covert or clandestine activity that the U.S. government or some other government did that threatened them enough to say we're going to deter North Korea from engaging in these kinds of provocative acts in cyberspace. So, so that's one theory, but there's no real good way to kind of verify that unless, you know, you have access to sort of that kind of information, maybe in the intelligence community. But from the outside, it's a bit hard to tell. And I think we always have to be kind of wary of the fact that it could always come back. If the opposite is true, that if they're not really refraining from these acts because they're being deterred, but they just want to make money for right now, but they can always turn back to these kinds of acts, you know, when maybe the administration changes or they want to kickstart some kind of bilateral 
negotiations or something, this is what they usually do, right? Like March is the time for provocations for North Korea, especially after the new administration comes in. So I think that possibility has to be always kept open. And there are all, all these sort of underlying facts that are not changing, right? So it's still the case that North Korea enjoys a huge asymmetric advantage in cyberspace. It just has less things to hold hostage because they're not really reliant in cyber for their daily activities. So, so those things are constant and they're, they're not changing. And so I think it's a little bit premature to say, say that deterrence is, is working. I want to shift to this very big trip that Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin and Secretary of State Tony Blinken are taking to the region next week. Victor and Sue, there's a lot to chop up here in what is known as the two plus two. Can you guys give us a, your analysis of what is this all about and what do you think is going to come out of it? It is the first in-person trip, right, by Blinken and Austin. So it's, it's the first top Biden administration cabinet officials trip. So this is kind of a big deal. Uh, I know the Koreans and Japanese are quite excited about it just to have this dialogue. I think after they hold the dialogue, Secretary Austin then will go to India and then basically Blinken and National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan will be heading to Alaska and meet with Chinese officials. But a lot, a lot going on. I think what's going to happen, what we can expect is they're going to talk a lot about alliance issues. They're going to, of course, talk about North Korea policy, regional issues, and the global issues. And on the alliance issues, there's, you know, troop readiness, joint exercises, OPCON transfer. U.S. and South Korea did recently conclude special measures agreement. It's not public yet what they've agreed to in terms of exact figure. So I think they're going to announce that. If you remember last year, you know, a, a year ago in March 2020, U.S. and South Korea reached an agreement for South Korea's contribution to go up to like 13% to $1.2 billion, but Trump vetoed that. So, you know, this has been a real issue and now they have, you know, concluded an agreement. So this is a really positive step towards alliance. On the North Korea policy, South Koreans know and the Japanese know that this North Korea policy is ongoing. They have not concluded it. In fact, there's been some delay and I think the policy review will be concluded by late this month or even early next month uh, or even mid-April. So they're going to, you know, talk about, you know, hey, what's, what's been going on with the policy review? So they will talk about North Korea. And of course, a lot of uh, regional issues, China, Quad, trilateral, Korea, Japan, rock relationship, that, that's going to come up, a uh, very important point that they will discuss. The South Koreans are going to say, you know, they just had a March 1st Independence Day. Moon Jae-in gave a speech where he said he would stand by the conformant deal that how now South Koreans are making progress on that. They're more forward-looking, but it's the Japanese. They're not playing ball. You know, there was a new South Korean ambassador to Japan, Kang Jang-il, uh, who Japanese foreign minister, you know, Motegi still has not met with, and so on. So there's going to be a lot of back and forth. But as we talked about in the previous Impossible State podcast, you know, Blinken is somebody who has been very, very engaged on, in this issue, very familiar with this issue, because when he was Deputy Secretary of State under Obama, he worked very hard to drive this trilateral relationship forward by initiating quarterly trilateral meetings and insisting concrete results and so on. So I think this is something that maybe potentially they can make some headway on that. And then, you know, there is, of course, lots of global issues to go over. But it's, it's a very important meeting between, you know, U.S., Japan and South Korea. So what I, I would add is that over the last four years, the United States was basically trying to squeeze our allies for more money, at the same time 
decoupling short-range ballistic missile threats from North Korea and long-range threats, basically saying our allies were liabilities, not assets. It was all about America first. And at the same time, the U.S. was cut out of the two major trade agreements in Asia, RCEP and CPTPP, right? That's the environment that we're talking about. And so what we're seeing last week and this week is first the virtual uh, quad summit, right, among the uh, U.S., Australia, India, and Japan, you know, which they had real agreements like on vaccines, on supply chains, rare earths, th this sort of things. And, and which notably South Korea is not part of the quad. Which South Korea is not a part of, right? And then we have this visit by the two head diplomats and head defense secretaries to the region for the two plus two with Japan and Korea. Austin, as Sue said, then goes to India. And then we have the Alaska meeting between the United States and China. So, Andrew, as we were talking about earlier, this is like the Biden one-two punch with regard to returning to Asia, right? It's saying, you know, it's coalitional diplomacy in the quad with real deliverables, not just paper, but real deliverables. And then it's this two plus two in Japan and Korea where they've done SMA, they'll coordinate policy on North Korea, show that there's no daylight on North Korea, push sort of trilateral coordination against US, Japan, Korea. I agree, like, as you mentioned, and really work on the Koreans to be more part of this coalitional approach, because right now they're kind of out there on their own. So I think it's a really good one-two punch that, you know, all these people who are doing this, who are doing the pivot during under Obama, and this is like pivot plus. This is like the next step forward. And I was going to say it's like pivot the sequel, right? Right. Pivot to the sequel, right? Kurt Campbell, pivot to the sequel. <laughs> so, I, you know, I think it's a great... Because, you know, we really haven't seen them yet unveil what the Asia strategy is going to be. And now we're starting to see it play out this week. And so I think it's a really good one to punch. Well, we're definitely going to have a lot to talk about following the summit. So we're going to be back here on the Impossible State to chop that up. So thanks to all of you. Jenny, thank you for being with us to explore these cyber issues. I know we're going to have you back in short order here because these are ongoing and, and something that we're really watching here closely. Thank you for your expertise, Victor and Sue. Thank you as always. We will be back next week with another episode of the Impossible State to talk about what happened in the two plus two. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. Thanks. If you have a question for one of our experts about the impossible state, email us at impossiblestate at csis.org. If you want to dive deeper into the issues surrounding North Korea, check out Beyond Parallel. That's our micro website that's dedicated to bringing a better understanding of the Korean peninsula. You can find it at beyondparallel.csis.org. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's so more listeners can find us. It's very helpful. We're now also streaming on Spotify, so you can find us there too, where you find all your music. How cool is that? And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Impossible State.